And so where else would I go but Romans 8? Okay, so I'm going to read uh, the last five verses of Romans 8, and uh, we'll pray and jump into the text. Romans 8, verses 35 to 39 says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, sanctify us in this glorious truth today. Your word is truth, and Father, I also pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, even as I'm preaching, would be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you uh, have been around for any length of time, I have expressed my love for Romans 8, this love affair that I have for this one chapter in the Bible. In my view, it is the the height of divine revelation in all the scriptures. Now, that might sound kind of sacrilegious. I don't mean for it to. I certainly believe that all of the Bible is equally inspired Romans 8, Leviticus 8, Revelation 8, everything in between and before and after, it's all inspired. It's all equally inspired. But there are some places in the Bible that seem to elevate uh, certain parts of divine revelation for us to see most clearly or more clearly. I think of Isaiah chapters 40 through like 45 or so, that just have this elevated view of God who is sovereign over all other false gods and so forth. And Romans chapter 8 is one of those passages. And what seems to be elevated in Romans 8 is this breathtakingly glorious salvation that we have in Jesus Christ and the kind of full assurance that God our Father wants us to have and know and walk in as his children. This full assurance of salvation. And when I talk about assurance, it's more than just, you know, theological propositions that we believe. Where we say, well, the Bible says this, and it says this, and it says this, and I believe that, and so I'm assured in my heart that I'm a child of God. That's important. That's foundational. But when I'm talking about a full assurance, I mean that there is an overflowing, deep, visceral sense in our souls that this is true. Gloriously true. And so I ask you up front, do you want to live in the abundance of the life that Christ died and rose again, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and there intercedes for you? Do you want to live in the abundance of life that he 
gives us. It's found in this rich assurance of salvation. And in my view, Romans 8 is above all a chapter on assurance. It's overflowing with the language of assurance. It starts in verse 1 by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. A little bit later, it talks about how we have not received a spirit of slave or fear, spirit of fear to fall back into slavery, slavery, but we have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, "Abba, Father." Like this is the language of assurance, right? The Holy Spirit's been given to us, poured into our hearts, and it's by Him that we cry, "Abba, Father." The very next verse says it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones describes that verse. He describes it this way. He says a father and a son walking down, a father and his toddler son walking down the sidewalk. They're holding hands. The son knows the father loves him and the father knows that he loves the son. But every once in a while, The father sweeps up his son in his arms and kisses him and embraces him and tells him and showers his love upon him. It's that kind of rich, full assurance that we're talking about. Certainly, Romans 8 goes on to talk about our future hope and it speaks with such certainty and such confidence, the Apostle Paul does, that this is meant to evoke in us this powerful, visceral sense of assurance. But it's when we get to the last section of this marvelous chapter that we come to a sort of crescendo and it reaches its peak in these verses we're looking at today. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, Paul could have simply said, nobody. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he develops his answer. He doesn't just give a one-word answer, and he gives a a four-and-a-half-verse answer. Sometimes fewer words are better than many words. No doubt. We We heard about that in Ecclesiastes. We can use too many words to say something very simple, very straightforward. My dad, whom I loved, loved and still do dearly, But all of his children knew that he got very long-winded. He was known for his lectures. And we thought, geez, you could have said that in five sentences instead of 20 minutes. I think I've inherited that from my father. My kids know that well. Sometimes we use way too many words, but there are times when more words fleshing things out is absolutely necessary, and it is here. Because we're talking about full assurance of salvation. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It just doesn't do service to say nobody. Here we have, in these last five verses, the final layer of this thick and strong foundation for the Christian's assurance. A foundation that in turn makes us strong rather than brittle, makes us full of confidence 
rather than anxiety, I think I heard the word anxiety a few times during worship, right? We want this kind of confidence in the Lord, not ourselves. This kind of assurance gives us joy in the place of despair. What Paul unpacks here is the final layer of this foundation, and I think it's a final la- the final layer for a good reason. Now, you may remember, I just want to go back and, and look at a few previous verses. You may remember that there are two previous questions Paul asks here in Romans 8 in the last 10 or so verses. After proclaiming that the author of the Christian salvation is God from foreknowledge, right, which is before the foundation of the world, to glorification, which is in the future, all of that, foreknowledge to glorification, God is the author of our salvation, And after expounding that, the Apostle Paul asks this question. Actually, it's two questions. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we know the answer, right? Nobody can, right? God gave his own son. Of course, he's going to give us all things that we need now and into eternity with his son whom he's already given to us. That's assurance. But then Paul asks another question. And it's actually two questions again, but it's essentially the same. He says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Who can condemn God's people? We already heard earlier, verse 1 says, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. What's the answer? Well, nobody can. And why? Why can nobody bring a charge against God's elect? If you belong to him, why can't someone bring a charge against you that sticks? Well, the right Sunday school answer is always Jesus, right? And actually, that's the right answer here too. But that's not all Paul says. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who now is at the right hand of God the Father? Who's ascended to the Father's right hand? And who from that place at the Father's right hand makes intercession for us? That's the answer for why no one can bring a condemning accusation against us if you're in Christ. We sing the hymn before the throne and there's these words, I think it's maybe in the second verse, no, it's the last verse or third verse. It says, Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. This is meant to give us assurance, a soaring assurance. Now it's one thing to know that God is for us and because he's for us nobody truly and nothing can successfully be against us. That is wonderful beyond measure. We may say and we should say come what may God is for me. The Christian if you're a Christian you have this assurance. This assurance is for you to know and deeply experience. Likewise, it is precious beyond measure to know and be assured that no charge can be laid against me if I'm in Christ. No condemning accusation can stick. This too is part of 
assurance. But Paul doesn't stop there, and I think for good reason. The height of this assurance of salvation is not reached until we get to the end, until we get to the great love of Christ. In my view, this is the mountain, this is the peak of Mount Everest, okay? If Romans 8 is the Himalayas, this is Mount Everest. This is precious beyond measure. And so I come back to the question that Paul asks. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Instead of just saying nobody, he goes on to press the issue and he asks another question. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I think it's quite clear to be separated from the love of Christ is to be cut off from his love. The word separate here means it's the same word Jesus uses when he talks about marriage between husband and wife, man and woman, and he says, what therefore God has brought together or joined together, let no man separate. And so here, Paul lists some, some things. Okay? He says, shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Shall distress? Tribulations like to feel pressure, right? This intense pressure, feel like we're being squeezed. Distress is something similar, feel like to be in this narrow place. Anyone here claustrophobic? Be kind of in this narrow, enclosed place. Shall that separate us from the love of Christ? The squeezing, the pressures of life that sometimes feel so absolutely intense. How about persecution? How about famine or nakedness or danger? All manner of danger or even death, the sword. Of course, this is not an exhaustive list, but I think it pretty much covers all of the worst things that could happen to us in life in a general sense. You might think of a specific thing, but I think it would probably fit into one of these broad categories. And Christians have faced all of these things. Christians, those who belong to Jesus Christ, are not exempt from these things coming into our lives, from facing these difficulties. We are not. Some of these difficulties are part of living in a fallen and sinful and sin-wracked world. Some of it comes from the hands of other people, and no doubt some come from demonic sources. Nevertheless, these are things that we face. These are challenges that we do walk against and run into. You only have to look at Scripture. Read through the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, often, not always, but often you will see side by side the advance of the gospel and intense difficulties for Christians. And with only a cursory view or understanding of, of, the ch- of church history, you will know that Christians have always faced these things. And we do too. Maybe not as intense as the Apostle Paul. No doubt not as intense as the Apostle Paul. But we too face these things. And you only have to look at 
The Apostle Paul, you have to look no further than him. This one man experienced all of these things. So he speaks from experience. So can tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Well, Paul says, I experience tribulation, right? Tons of it all the time. What about distress? Did Paul experience distress, anguish, and extreme affliction? Yeah, no doubt. Persecution? Paul was always persecuted. Right? I mean, he was hounded nonstop. Famine? Did Paul go hungry? Yeah, at times he did. He said he knew how to abound and also how to be in want. Nakedness? Was Paul ever exposed to the elements and cold without a place to, to stay or without a place to shelter? Absolutely. What about danger? Yes, Paul was in danger all the time. In fact, when was Paul not in danger? 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I was in danger in the city. I was in danger in the wilderness. I was in danger at sea. Okay, city, out in the country, at sea, that pretty much sums it up, right? Where else are you going to be? He said, I was, in, I was in danger from the Jews. I was in danger from false brothers. I was in danger from... 1 Corinthians 15 says he, wrestled, he, he fought against wild beasts. He was even in danger from wild beasts. Paul was always in danger. And what about the sword? Well, of course, if you know much about Paul, he was always living under a sentence of death. All the time. In fact, I wonder how many times it crossed Paul's mind. Is this the end? I mean, he knew in 2 Timothy that it was the end. But there's other places he's in prison or that time he'd been, he was stoned and probably maybe did die. Maybe that's when he had his trip to the third heaven. We don't know for sure, but it could be. Paul was always living with the threat of execution. And so Paul knows from experience, and he's the one who asks, can these things separate us from the love of Christ? But Paul is not done building his argument. He goes on in verse 36, and he quotes a portion of Psalm 44. He says this, As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This portion of of Psalm 44 that Paul quotes is where the psalmist is lamenting the fact that God, it seems, has given his people over to their enemies. He has given them over to be slaughtered by their enemies. He no longer goes out and fights with their armies. Has God given them over? When Christians are distressed and persecuted and experience tribulation, big or small, and even face death, is this what's happening? Has God forgotten us? Has God given us over? Has he rejected us? Has he, I'm done with them. Are we merely like sheep being led to the slaughter? We know the answer. Verse 37 We get the answer we have been waiting for, except it's not just a one-word answer. The first word is the word we expect. Can these things separate us from the love of Christ? Has God rejected us? Will he ever reject us? Paul's answer 
in verse 37 is astounding. And it begins with the one word, again, we all expect, but it does not end there. Here's what he says. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things. Not once we get through these things, not once we get past them. Listen, not when we die and go to be with Jesus. Now all those things are true. Jesus, he leads us in triumphal procession all the time, but Paul here wants to press upon us that it is in all of these things that we are more than conquerors through his mighty love. In the midst of the greatest difficulties we could face in life, in them, it's in them, it's in them that we are more than conquerors through the love of Christ. Now, the phrase more than conquerors, um, I use the ESV, I like the ESV, but I have to take issue with the ESV here a bit. Um, where it says more than conquerors. And I think I understand why the translators, I think I understand why they chose that wording. Because the New American Standard, and some of the older translations use the phrase something like, we, are, we overwhelmingly conquer. Anybody have a translation that says that? We overwhelmingly conquer, okay, doesn't matter. Um, and I think that's a little clumsy. We don't, you know, we wouldn't put those two words together like that probably in English. But the reason why I like that better is because this is a verb and not a noun. In fact, and so in other words, it's not describing something that we are more than conquerors, but it's describing something that we do. We overwhelmingly conquer through Christ's love in all of these things. It describes something that we do, not merely something that we are. This is something that the Christian can expect to experience in his or her relationship with Jesus Christ. Whatever you may be facing or whatever you may face in the future, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now, the word conquer is the Greek word nikao. It's where the, the tennis shoe brand Nike gets its name from. Did you know that? Probably didn't, but it doesn't matter. But it's interesting, okay? And it means to conquer. It means to win a victory. It means to triumph or overcome. We see this, uh, this word used actually pretty extensively throughout the book of Revelation. In fact, it's used every time Jesus has, has something to say to each of the seven churches, the seven letters. Every time it said, Jesus ends with, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who triumphs. And then he gives this wonderful promise. Jesus also uses this word when he speaks of himself. 
John 16, says, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart or be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. This is a word of serious victory. So what does it mean to overwhelmingly conquer? I mean, you win a victory, it's like amen. Jesus won a victory over the world. Everyone who is faithful to Christ to the end will conquer, Jesus says. What does it mean in the midst of difficulties to overwhelmingly conquer? To be more than a conqueror. To super conquer, if you could say that. Um, What does that mean? I think we have to see that. I think we really need to get this. This is assurance, remember? This is assurance. To conquer means to win. But this says we do more than just conquer. So this is a compound word. It's hooper nikao. I already talked about nikao, right? That means to overcome, to win a victory. The prefix hooper means exceedingly or abundantly or overwhelmingly. Through the love of Christ, in tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in danger, in famine, in naked exposure, in even the face of death, we abundantly win through Christ who loved us. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm like, how does that work? What does it mean to abundantly conquer? What does it mean to overwhelmingly conquer? Well, I think there's a couple of things that it means. Probably both of them. Maybe, and you, we could probably add more to this, but here's a couple of things that come to my mind. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Christ who loves us When these things, and we could go through the list, tribulation all the way to sword, when these things that threaten to cut us off from the love of Christ actually serve God's greater purpose for us. How many know that God's greatest purpose in this life is not to walk on beds of roses your entire life? or to be sailing on calm seas. He has other things in mind. I think we get a glimpse of that just a few verses back, about eight verses back. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Now, Romans 8, 28, I bet you a lot of people here know that. God causes all things together to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We, a lot of us know that verse. Do you know the next verse, though? It says this. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, the all things that God works together for good, we always, you always hear that when someone's going through a tragedy or something hard. Not only, but often, 
And verse 29 tells us what one thing, one general thing we can have confidence that God is up to in the midst of those things, those hard things. We know that if we are in Christ, one thing he's doing is he is conforming us to the image of his son in order that Christ might be the firstborn of a whole host, a big family of children. So, how do we overwhelmingly conquer? It's when these things that we face, danger and the sword and tribulation and distress, it's when these things, when, we, when these things serve God's greater purpose for us. When these things that threaten to cut us off from the love of Christ actually rise up and serve us and God's purpose for us. But I think there's something else and this is what I want to press uh, in the remainder of our time this morning. How do we over, what does it mean to overwhelmingly conquer? It, I think this is what it means. When we experience the great love of Christ even more in the midst of these hard circumstances. When the risen living Christ becomes even more precious to us and his love becomes more glorious to us in the midst of these hard things. And I think that's just been the testimony of Christians since the beginning. It's usually, usually people don't boast of, I mean, sometimes they do, and I'm not disparaging that, but I think most often people say, it was when I was going through this horrific thing that Christ met me so powerfully. Usually it's not, you know, when everything was going swimmingly well and, man, there was no problem on any side, that's when I met Jesus most powerfully. That's usually not the way that it goes. We overwhelmingly conquer when we face great difficulty, some significant trial, some hardship, and the Lord Jesus Christ comes to us And his love is more precious and real to us in that moment or in that time. This is what it means to overwhelmingly conquer through his love. Now, of course, we have to understand that the Holy Spirit is the vital person in all of this. Remember, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit through whom God pours his great love into our hearts. Right, Romans 5, 5. The love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. Has that, have you experienced that? Has the mighty love of Christ been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit whom God has given to you? It's, this is just a bit of an aside, okay? Kind of a sidebar here. Read Romans 8 this week and just notice how many times the word spirit is used? I'll tell you, 22 times. In one chapter. Now, two times it's referring not to the Holy Spirit, it's referring to the human spirit, or you've not rece- received a spirit of fear to fall back in, or slavery to fall back into fear. But the other 20 times, it is talking about the Holy Spirit. We're, we're, we're expounding the glory of, being, of having this full, full assurance of 
salvation. And it comes when the Holy Spirit makes these things alive in our souls. It's no longer, now listen, I'm, I'm a theology guy, okay? I love theology. I love propositional truth. I do. We need that. We don't just kind of float through the Bible and just feel, that's, so we need theological truth. I love doctrine. I like figuring things out. But this, what we're talking about today is more than that. It is having the Holy Spirit come and unload this glorious truth into our hearts. Jesus said in John 16, 7, it is, it is better for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, then the helper won't come to you. But if I go, I'll send him. How on earth could it be better for the disciples and for you and I that Jesus doesn't walk next to us except that by the Holy Spirit, Jesus becomes even more real to us. Samuel Rutherford, who was a Scottish minister, I love this quote, from a long time ago, he knew and expressed this truth. Here's what he said. Now listen to this. He said, the secret formula of the saints is this. When I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. Do you get that? When I'm in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. Well, Romans 8 doesn't end in verse 37. It ends two verses later. And here's where Paul gives this glorious, boastful, confident declaration. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I love how he says, I am sure of this. You hear Paul boasting his total confidence. And I just have to ask, can we say this as well? Not just because we can read it on the pages of Scripture. That's important. We know that is true because it's here. But can we also say it because we know something of the great love of Christ? Nothing in all of creation, Paul says, can separate us from the love of Christ. Well, what else is there? You got, either, you got the creator and you got the creation. If nothing in the creation can separate us from the love of Christ, then nothing can. Only someone who knows the love of Christ by experience certainly by theological truth as well, but also by experience, can say this. And this is where, I'll just be honest, this is where I fear I am too inexperienced. I want to know this more. The Apostle Paul, I I don't feel like I'm in bad company. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, after he'd walked with Jesus for many years, he said, oh, to know him. He wanted to know Christ better. So do I. So do I. And I hope you have a hunger for that as well.
Only someone who has experienced the love of God poured into their hearts by the Holy Spirit can say, I am sure that nothing, nothing, you go through the list, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Only one who, is, who knows the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge can speak like this. Only one who is so controlled by the love of Christ has this kind of boastful confidence. And that's my prayer that we would Because this is for all of God's children. It is for all of us. I have no doubt that many of us have seen and been perceptive enough to see the contrast between a child that we just know is so well-loved at home and one who maybe isn't so well-loved at home. The one child just bursts with a good kind of kid confidence, right? They're loved. They're cared for. There's a joyful assurance and confidence that mom and dad are for me. They love me. The other child struggles with fears and anxieties, often taking out their insecurities on themselves and others in all sorts of sinful and destructive ways. All of God's children are to know this great love. This is not for a special few Christians. This is for all who are in Christ. And I think that's the point. It is the love of God in Christ Jesus. The love of God found in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is found in Christ who died for us, well, who lived for us, who died for us, who rose on our behalf, who ascended to the Father's right hand, who there intercedes for us. This love of God is in Christ Jesus. We will never be separated from this love. There can be many reasons, however, why this is not our experience. There can be many reasons why it's not our experience. Maybe some are just like, I don't even care about this. I hope that's not you. I deeply hope that's not you. This is uninteresting to you. There can be many reasons why this isn't our experience, but we may pray for it, that it would be more and more increasingly. I, 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 I trust that everyone here, this is our experience to some degree, but we may pray for it more to know this reality. And we should. In fact, Paul teaches us how, how to pray for this. But in fact, Paul gives us a prayer to pray for this. It's one of the great prayers in the New Testament. Paul prays for this very thing. He prays for the Christians in Ephesus that they would experience the, late, the great love of Christ. And he said, in experiencing this great love of Christ, that you would be filled with all of the fullness of God. Here's what he said. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and height and depth and breadth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I find it, just want to draw one thing out of here. He says, I pray that you may be granted strength with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then he says, I'm paraphrasing the rest of it, so that you can handle this mighty love when it comes into your heart. These words are deep and glorious and I think expound the experience of the love of Christ that Paul prays for all the believers in Ephesus, but he also says that you may know, that you may, uh, how does he put it, that you may um, comprehend with all of the saints. In other words, this is for all of the saints. This is for all of God's family. This is for all of his children. Rooted and grounded in love, to know the incomprehensible love of Christ is described as being filled with all the fullness of God. If you are a Christian, this is for you. And I would suggest that this is the path, this is the way of the richest, deepest assurance of God's grace and salvation toward us. Not only that, it's also the path of boldness and joy and holiness and generosity and all the other fruits that we want to exhibit in our lives. It comes from one who is firmly rooted and grounded and I would say swimming in the vast ocean of God's immeasurable love for us in Christ. This is the way of confidence even though we don't know the future. This is the full assurance that we need in the days in which we live and the dark days that seem to be ahead of us. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I want to urge you, I want to urge us to seek God to know this more deeply. Seek him for a heart full of the love of Christ and all the riches of full assurance that come with it. This, I believe, is the abundant life that Christ came to give us. This side of eternity, in this world right now. So let's seek God for it. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this in my view, most precious passage. And Father, uh, we can take it to the bank because it's, because it's in your word and your word is perfect and you're not a God who lies or changes your mind. And so we thank you for that. But Father, this is a word that is meant to uh, not just stay in, in our brains, something that we just think about, although that's important, but it's meant to go deep into our deep into our souls and affect our affections and affect our, uh, the very core of who we are. It's, it's really to affect the, uh, the essence of who and what we are. The love of God in Christ Jesus.